are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. So buckle down. It's a long one. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea, Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The woman, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one who you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers have worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's uh, good to gather with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I hope we can meet today. Uh, today's a, a, a challenging, or not challenging, interesting Sunday. Uh, our uh, college students, most of them are off on spring break. So if you think about it, you can pray for them. Is there a way? Sometimes uh, some of them are spending time with their families. Some of them are on uh, mission trips right now. So be praying for them as they're gone. Uh, I know others are probably uh, have forgotten to change their clocks if they don't use their phones. 
And then uh, also, if you know our other uh, staff pastor, Edward, uh, he was gone uh, this past week or 10 days or so in the Middle East uh, with one of our missionaries, Kim, uh, just helping her figure out where God's leading her next. It was a fantastic trip, and he is excited to share all that with you. In light of everything that's going on with uh, the coronavirus, we uh, thought it wise for him to stay home. And uh, since he traveled internationally over these last few days, uh, he's feeling great. Uh, and so no worries, just kind of preventative. So uh, he is itching to be back here. And if you know him, he was excited to give hugs. But we said, you know what, I don't know if you have enough self-control to not hug people this morning. So uh, why don't you just stay home and hang with your family? So uh, he sends his love to you and is excited to be back hopefully soon uh, with us to gather together. But as we dive into God's word this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer uh, and just ask him to bless our time as we, as we dive into John 4. Would you pray with me? And God, we, we come before you this morning and we just want to acknowledge that we belong to you. God, you are our creator. You're our sustainer. You give us life and breath. So we rejoice in that. We give you thanks for that. And so God, I pray that as we recognize that this morning, if we're aware of the fact that you have made us, that you sustain us, that you give us life, God, I pray that our time in your word would only help us to fix our eyes on you, to exalt you, to worship you, to praise you. I pray that your word this morning would realign our hearts and our minds where maybe they've gotten off track this week, seeking to run after and chase after other things besides you for our joy or comfort. God, we pray that Christ would be made much of today. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus this morning as we seek to see him and savor him and rejoice in him. We thank you for the gift it is to gather together. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters that aren't here this morning, whether they're dealing with sickness in their own homes, their college students that are away on spring break. For those that have other things going on, we pray that you'd encourage our brothers and sisters that can't be here right now. They also would fix their eyes on Jesus. And together as your people that we would rejoice in you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness. May you be made much of today. Fill us with your spirit, God, we pray. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Have you guys ever had a situation in your life where you've uh, maybe had an encounter or an interaction with someone and you didn't really realize how significant it was until maybe partway through that encounter, through that interaction, or sometime later on in life? I know that's happened for me. When I was a, a freshman in college, uh, I was going to the University of Tennessee, and one weekend went to visit a friend at Virginia Tech, and so made my way up for the weekend to hang out and have fun over that weekend. During the course of that weekend, I, I met uh, a girl on that trip, and she had some mutual friends that I had at the University of Tennessee. We talked at dinner with a bunch of people. We talked a little bit after a ministry event on campus, and then she was actually going to be going out of town for the rest of the weekend, but she asked me before she left for my screen name. This is 1999. 1999. Now, it's up for debate. She would argue that I asked for her screen name, but we all know that I'm correct in that. Uh, and I have the microphone this morning. So, um, <clears throat> so we, we exchanged screen names because, you know, again, this is 1999. We didn't even have cell phones. I know, hard for some of you to believe. Now, I didn't think much of it about it at the time because uh, that's what we did. We, we'd interact, we'd chat on, online with different friends from high school, other things that were going on. So I didn't think much about it. I was interested in someone else. She was dating another person at that time. Well, fast forward and coming up in June, that girl has been my wife for 17 years. That's right. AIM. 
That's where that relationship blossomed. Back in September, though, as a church, we started this sermon series in the Gospel of John called Seeing Jesus. And we've been spending this time walking through that. We took a break for a little while uh, to talk through and pre- preach through some other things. We're jumping back into it, into John chapter 4 this morning. And what we're going to see in John chapter 4 this morning is an encounter that takes place with Christ that is hugely significant. But in the moment, for the person in particular that's having this encounter, it kind of unfolds slowly for them. They don't quite see the significance of it until later on in that conversation. Now we're in this series that we're jumping back into, and it's called Seeing Jesus because the goal of this is for us to rightly see Christ, that as we encounter Christ in our own lives, that we would not only fix our eyes on Jesus, but actually understand who he actually is. Not some preconceived notion we have, not thinking, well, I think I know who Christ is, but we would kind of come with that childlike faith to fix our eyes on Jesus. I mean, the most significant question that any of us can ask in our life is, who do you say Jesus is? And John actually tells us at the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, I'll throw it up on the screen here, it says this, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That means that answering that question, who do you say Jesus is, is hugely significant. It's the very point and purpose of the Gospel of John. So every text we've looked at already through chapter 3, every text we're going to look at through the rest of the Gospel of John, is so that we can see Jesus rightly. And then seeing Jesus rightly, we may truly know him and follow him and have life in him. And because that answer to that question has eternal ramifications for your life, now and in the future, for all eternity, that means it's important for all of us, whether you already call yourself a follower of Jesus or not. The Gospel of John is for all of us. That means this sermon series is for all of us, both the person that's full of faith and the skeptic. So like I said, today we're going to look at this encounter that Jesus has that's insanely significant, not only for the person, but I hope for us as well, that that as we look at this encounter that this woman has, that we'll also be able to see Jesus more clearly and rightly and see ourselves more clearly and accurately as well. Now, whether you're familiar with the Gospel of John or not, whether you know this story that we're going to look at this morning or not, I believe God wants to speak to us this morning. He wants to draw us into deeper relationship with him, closer to him, so that we could experience real life, genuine life in him, and respond in genuine worship. So with that, let's dive into John 4, and may we see Jesus more clearly this morning. In John chapter 4, the beginning of this text that that Emily just read for us, these first few verses are really a a transitional statement in the Gospel of John. Now, it's been a little while since we've been in it, and what's happened right before this in John chapter 3 is that Jesus has had a pretty uh, profound interaction with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he's asking Jesus these questions and and Jesus tells him what it takes for someone to have a relationship with the Father, to be in the kingdom of God. And he tells Nicodemus that you must be born again. Later on in John chapter 3, we see that John the Baptist is exalting Christ amongst his followers. And so people are beginning to follow Jesus. They're leaving following John the Baptist to begin to be disciples of Jesus. We just got done with our series on being disciples, being followers of Christ, that our life and our lifestyle will be conformed more and more to who Jesus is. And so people are starting to follow after this one that John the Baptist says is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And so that brings us then to the beginning of John chapter 4. Let me just read these verses for us again. John 4, 1 through 6. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the Pharisees, these religious leaders, are hearing about what's going on with Jesus. And so they're starting to get nervous about it. They're starting to get anxious about it. They're not sure who this Jesus is. And they see, well, all these people are leaving John the Baptist. They're beginning to follow after him. And so some, there's some rumblings that are brewing up in this area. And so Jesus decides to go back to Galilee. And on his way back to Galilee, he has to pass through an area called Samaria. Samaria is a, a part of Israel, and, and there's a group of people there called the Samaritans, and that's a, a people group that uh, is part Jewish and has intermarried with people who aren't Jewish. And so oftentimes they were looked down on by those that were fully Jewish. They were kind of marginalized and treated poorly sometimes by others. And so Jesus is walking through Samaria with his disciples, and he comes to this well, and we see here it says Jesus is wearied from his journey. Like, if we could just stop there for a second, just remembering that Jesus is human. He's taken on humanity. He's thirsty and tired, just like you get thirsty and tired. And so he's weary, and he sits there by the well. And that brings us to where we're at in our text this morning, where we're going to focus on this interaction that's about to take place. See, in John chapter 3, Jesus showed us how someone enters the kingdom of God. They must be born again, have new life, brought about by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 4, he begins to tell us who can enter the kingdom of God. See, so far, Jesus has been dealing only with Jewish people, but that's all about to change. When he's at Jacob's well, this historical place for God's people, that this unique and important encounter takes place. And it's our first point in our sermon this morning, which is drink the living water. Look at verses 7 and 9. 7 through 9. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, right away, we should notice something strange about this scene. There's a woman who's coming to the well, and she's coming in the middle of the day. The sixth hour is about noon. And so she's coming in the middle of the day, and she's coming by herself. That would have been odd for two reasons. One, it's the hottest part of the day. Most people, when they came to Get water would come at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, not right smack in the middle of the day when the sun is at its peak and it's, the, it's getting hot outside. There's no shade, nothing like that. So she's coming in the middle of the day and it's unusual for her to come by herself. So something interesting and unique is going on here already. But then Jesus speaks to her and he, and he asks her for a drink of water, which also would have been unheard of for two reasons. One, because he's a Jewish man by himself. His disciples have gone. They've gone to go get food. And he's speaking to a woman, which would have been very unusual, and even more so because she's a Samaritan woman. And this woman's taken aback by this. She thinks it's strange also. She thinks that he's going to be defiled 
if he takes anything from her. She's looking at him saying, you're a Jewish man. You believe that if you take this water from me, you drink out of my jug of water, whatever it is that I give you to drink out of, that's going to defile you. Why in the world would you be asking me for water? She thinks Jesus is going to be defiled, but what she doesn't understand yet about this interaction is not that Jesus will be defiled, but he actually can remove her defilement. He can change everything for her. We need to see something about Jesus right here. Jesus is always intentional in what he does. He's thirsty. He needs a drink of water. But there's more going on here. He's up to something. He's always purposeful in his interactions. And this is the starting point for this woman, for the community that she finds herself in, for the readers of this gospel account, that the kingdom of God is for men and women. It's for the outsider and the insider. It's for people from all ethnicities and all backgrounds. Jesus is beginning to show that in this interaction he has. And so he responds to her. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And Jesus is drawing her in. He's leading her to look beyond the surface, not only at who he truly is, to see him for who he truly truly is, but actually to receive something that he can give to her, something significant, living water. Now she responds with what seems like a little bit of disdain, maybe skepticism. Verses 11 and 12, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's kind of looking at Jesus thinking like, who are you that you could offer me something better than this well that's been in our family and in our history for a really, really long time? Like, who do you think you are that you could do this? How could you be better than Jacob? She doesn't just think that Jesus is less than Jacob. I think she, she's thinking, this guy's kind of a ch- cheap charlatan too. He's saying he can offer me something, but he doesn't even have anything to get water out of. What's going on here? Well, she's doubly wrong. Verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, talking about the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I love this. What a great picture of the kindness and character of Jesus. That she's speaking to him kind of in a disrespectful way, like, who do you think you are? But Jesus is patient with her. He pursues her where she's at. He, he comes to her with gentleness and truth. And it's the same way he interacts with us. He comes to us in that way. And what he says to her is profound. He's saying, listen, everybody who drinks from this well will have to come back to it again because you're going to get thirsty again. It's not going to sustain you. It's not going to ultimately satisfy you. What I'm offering you is not that kind of water. I'm offering you something much more significant, much greater. I'm offering you you living water. Living water, the one thing that can actually satisfy you in this life. And this living water that Jesus gives not only satisfies you, it actually transforms you from the inside out, resulting in this spring of water welling up to eternal life. And welling up is not just like a little bubbling up. It's a a radical transformation, a resurrection-like transformation as it brews up to the surface this new life that you can have when you partake of what I offer you. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, if you've even read this story before, you can read this and think, oh, that sounds cool. That's pretty neat, Jesus. 
But what Jesus says here is, is insane if we really stop to think about what he's talking about. See, he's pressing in on something that all of us wrestle with. Longings in life. Our longings in life. We all thirst for things in our lives because we believe that we will not just have life sustained in us, but these things will actually give us life. See, the thirst that Jesus is talking about is not a physical thirst. That's basic to humanity. All of us have to eat and drink in order to stay alive. No, what Jesus is talking about is a soul-level thirst. The depth of who you are as a person. A thirst that can only be satisfied by God. A thirst that we, like this woman at the well, are tempted to look for to be satisfied in other people and in other things. I mean, this is the foundation and source of our rebellion. It goes all the way back beyond us, beyond her, to the very beginning of creation. In Genesis chapters 1 through 3, God t- creates Adam and Eve. He creates all of, uh, of creation, and he, he tells Adam and Eve, you, you should go out, you should multiply, you have dominion over all of creation. There's one thing you cannot do, and that's not to, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they're walking in obedience with God, but then Satan comes along and he tempts Eve and he says, did God really say this? Like, does he really believe this? Like, he's just scared that you're going to get to know too much. You're going to be too much like him. And so he puts this temptation out, this, this idea that God's not truthful, that he's not good. And then we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, what's ha- what happens. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see this picture here. She has this thing. She's looking for satisfaction in something. She's looking for life in something besides God, and so she says, oh, this looks good. I think it'll be good for me. It'll sustain me. It'll give me life, and so I'm going to eat of it. I'm going to partake of it, and the results are catastrophic. Results in physical and spiritual separation from God. Death spiritually and physically comes about. There's no more shalom, no more peace, no more unity with God. They're removed from God's presence. And the seed of rebellion is something that takes root in our own hearts, and our own lives, and it manifests itself in all kinds of different ways as we look for satisfaction in other things besides God, as we look for life in other things or other people or other places besides God. Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in New York City, or was a pastor uh, until recently, an author as well, says this. He says, sin is looking to something else or someone else besides God for salvation. When you're looking for rescue, when you're looking for redemption, when you're looking for life and anything besides God, that is the result of sin and the definition of what that is, that rebellion. It happened then, and it happens now. Listen to these sobering words from Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's writing to God's people. He's bringing exhortation and rebuke for their waywardness. And he says this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah is bringing this rebuke to God's people saying, God's the source of living water. He's the source of life. But instead of running after him and fixing your eyes on him, you've dug out these broken cisterns. You're trying to hold life and hold water in something that cannot do it. It doesn't end well. 
And that's what Jesus is getting at with this woman at the well. It's what he's getting at with us. Is what he's offering in the midst of that, though, is rescue. He's offering redemption from these false remedies and these broken cisterns. Saying, listen, life, real life, lasting life, eternal life comes from a person, not a place. Rescue is found in Christ and through Christ alone. But it seems like she doesn't quite get that yet. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. That sounds good to me. I don't need to come down to this well again. I don't have to see anybody. No one has to see me. I can just stay home, right? We can be, we live in a a culture of convenience. We like food to be delivered to our house and groceries to be delivered to our house and our anything or anything we want to be delivered to our house. That sounds good. Sounds convenient for me. Jesus doesn't get frustrated with her, though. She's not quite getting it yet. He continues to be patient with her. And he drills down to make it even more personal for her. Verses 16 through 18. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, when you have, what you have said is true. Jesus has turned to her marital status and the messiness of her life. It isn't to show his divinity. It isn't to show that he knows things about her. He isn't trying to belittle her in this. What he's doing is he's pointing out, listen, you're missing something here. You're missing who I am. You're not seeing me. And you're misunderstanding the true need of redemption that you actually have. He's helping her to come to terms with the things that she's actually looking for life in and satisfaction in and what he's offering to her. She's seeking value and identity and peace and comfort in relationships with men. It's been a part of her life. She's been married many times and she's currently living with a man she's not married to. And he doesn't say this to her to shame her. He says this to her to save her. You cannot, you will not come to Jesus for healing. You cannot and will not come to Jesus for life, for rescue, and for redemption if you don't acknowledge and admit your need for healing and life and rescue and redemption. If you don't first acknowledge and admit that you've been chasing after life and other things, things that will ultimately let you down, that will disappoint you and ultimately destroy you. If you don't do that, then you can't see your need for rescue. You will never come to Christ. And so Jesus is pointing this out for her to say, listen, you've been seeking life and other things besides God. I'm offering you real life. Come to me. Come to me. What we see in this woman is that she's actually a whole lot like Nicodemus, a man who thought that life was found in who he was and what he knew, what he had done. What about you? What are you looking for life and satisfaction in in your life right now? Is it the living God? Is it Christ or is it something else? Maybe your own self that you think you're kind of self-actualized and life is found within you or something the world offers you, your status or relationships. Maybe you're finding life and satisfaction in your family, something besides Christ. Jesus comes to this well. He enters into this woman's world and he offers her something that will not only save her, but will actually satisfy her forever. And that's consistent with what God has communicated about himself throughout time in his word to his people. Isaiah chapter 55, he says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, 
buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And then jumping down to verse 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus is the means to this. He provides a way for you to call on the Lord, to buy and eat, to be satisfied in him and not chase after things that the world offers you, but instead to turn away from that which doesn't satisfy and to turn to him who does. And here with this woman, he's inviting her to drink the living water given by the Holy Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can provide. The one who would at this point and who already has, from our vantage point, gone to the cross for sinners like her, like you, like me, taking on all of her, her sin and all of her shame and everything that you've done in rebellion against God, every place you've sought life in besides him, he's taken all of that on himself in the cross so that you can have life now and forevermore. And he rose again from the grave to defeat Satan and defeat sin and to defeat death forever. He did the same for her and he does the same for you. So do you believe him? Do you believe this offer that he's giving to this woman is an offer he gives to you? Have you actually trusted in him? Are you finding your life in him? Friend, drink the living water that Christ offers to you and gives to you freely. Your deepest soul-level longing can be and is satisfied fully in and through Jesus. So how does this woman respond to Jesus? It seems like maybe she's beginning to get it. We see this in our next point, respond in holy worship. Drink the living water and now respond in holy worship. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, we can look at this at first and think it seems like she's deflecting. Like Jesus has just brought some truth to her. He's saying, I mean, satisfaction is found in me. I'm giving you this living water. I know these things about you. I'm pointing out the things that's kind of your dark secrets of your life. And so it seems like, well, she doesn't address that. She talks about worship now. But I don't think she's deflect deflecting. I think she's actually starting to get what's going on here. She's starting to see Jesus rightly. See, she's a religious person, but in a kind of a syncretistic way. She says she worships God, but she also worships the things of the world. And she's kind of mixed this together with this kind of, uh, kind of a spirituality, an outward spirituality, but no real life within her. So she asks about worship as it relates to this place. She's saying, man, our, our tradition is to worship in this particular place, on this particular mountain, but you, the Jewish man, and your people say that you should worship in Jerusalem. So which one is it, Jesus? Where's the right place to worship the living God? But the reality of her life is she doesn't truly worship God. She's worshiping the God of self. She's worshiping the God of satisfaction found in the things of this world. So Jesus drives his point home in his response to her. Verses 21 through 24, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. See, what Jesus is saying here is He's getting to the heart of the matter. He's getting to the heart of worship before this woman for us as well. Worship is about giving praise and honor and adoration. We ascribe worth to the things that we worship. And what we worship governs how we live. What we fix our minds on, what we give adoration to, governs how we live. There was a writer from several years ago, a man named David Foster Wallace, who was not a follower of Christ, but wrote on philosophy and other things about culture. And he said this in a famous address. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody worships. God has created you that way. That our worship would be rightly given to him, but when we find our life and find satisfaction in other things besides him, that's the thing that we worship now. So this woman is starting to connect the dots. That what we look to be satisfied in is connected in how and what we worship. And so Jesus is leading her, he's leading us to see that chasing after false saviors will lead to false worship. He's showing her that this outward worship, it's not necessarily connected to any reality of a heart-level worship. No, real worship and right worship isn't about where or when, it's about a heart, it's about who. A heart that's been made new and transformed by the truth of who Christ is and inhabited by the Holy Spirit. See, the new life we have in him is a life of rebellion that's been overthrown and raised up, resurrected. That springing, spring welling up to eternal life, redeemed to new life forever. And the result of that, the overflow of that, is a life of worship. Worship in spirit and in truth that both flows from and results in satisfaction in God. We worship God in spirit and truth because God is spirit. So we're filled with his Holy Spirit that we might see him rightly and fix our gaze on him. We worship him in truth because his word instructs us about who he is. It tells us about who we are in relation to who he is so that we might see him rightly, see him exalted and fix our eyes on him. It isn't about where you do that. It isn't about exactly how you do that. It's what's going on in the new life that he's given you. So you drink the living water of Christ. Or as John Piper, a pastor and author, has famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God gets worship, he gets praise from us when we find our satisfaction in him above anything and everything else. The hour is coming and is now here, Jesus says, when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That means that true worship can only happen in and through Jesus because Jesus is the true temple of God where the very presence of God resides. Jesus is the final sacrifice that took on all of our sin The wrath of God poured out on him for us, and he is the resurrection and the life that we might have life in him. The only way to be made right with God, to be able to come before him into his presence, not to prove yourself worthy, not to prove yourself good, but to bask in his glory and his amazing grace is in and through Jesus. Just as real life and eternal life comes from a person and not a place, real worship and right worship is focused on a person and not a place. Church, what that means is is that when you see Jesus rightly, when you drink deeply from the living water that's made possible by Christ through his life, his death, and his resurrection, you are able to rightly respond in holy worship to our God. Because everything has changed for you when you partake of this living water. And everything is about to change for this woman. Look at verse 25 and 26. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It seems that the pieces are falling into place. The significance of this encounter is becoming more clear to this woman as she stands and talks to Jesus. She's saying, wait a minute, you're not just a Jewish man who needed a drink of water. Maybe Maybe you're this guy. Maybe you're the Messiah. Maybe because he's going to tell us all things. He's going to reveal truth to us. He's going to teach us and lead us. And so Jesus responds plainly and clearly to her. And he does the same to us. She says he is coming. Jesus says he has come. So what are we supposed to do with this encounter? We have this unique opportunity. We're kind of observing this encounter this woman has with Jesus. But what are we supposed to do with it? I think the reality is we're often oblivious to our real soul-level thirst. Even as followers of Jesus, we can be oblivious to the fact that our soul is created to long after one thing, and that's God, to find satisfaction in one person, and that's Him. And so we're tempted to go looking for it in other people, other places, other things. What Jesus is doing here is He's making the argument that if it's not, if He's not that thing, if He's not that person, that you're looking for that soul-level satisfaction in, then everything else will fail you because he alone is the giver of life. Unless it's me, Jesus says, that, that is satisfying you. Everything else will destroy you or abandon you, but I won't. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will save you and sanctify you and satisfy you from this time forth and forevermore. So if you're already a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in him, someone whose life has been transformed by the gospel, we need to come back to this truth, to this reality over and over again because our hearts are fickle and at times our faith is fleeting. In order to satisfy your deepest longing in life, to experience life now and forever, you have to continue drinking this living water that's offered to you in and through Jesus. Not because it isn't satisfying, not because it runs out, but because you want more and more of Christ. You recognize nothing else compares to who Jesus is and all of his beauty and all of his grace and all of his greatness. This ties back to our communion with God that we talked about last week. Are you coming to get God? Are you coming to delight in him? So if you find yourself wandering away, not drinking deeply from who Christ is, let me encourage you to repent of that. Even now, in this moment, to turn away from those things and fully pursue Christ. And that's going to be something that we have to do continually because our hearts are often pulled from this direction to that direction, away from Jesus. And that's okay. But it's important for us to recognize that. I know I have to do that in my own life because I am tempted to chase after satisfaction in broken cisterns. Thinking if this thing works out this way, if I have this comfort or this ease in my life, if I have certainty in my life, then I'll be satisfied when all along God is inviting me to himself to trust in him, that he is who he says he is. He's gracious and kind and patient. He continues to call me back to himself, and he does the same for you. So maybe that's true for you this morning. Maybe you find yourself saying, I, I know Jesus is my only hope, but I'm not living that way. My life doesn't look like that. I'm finding it in other places and other things. Turn to him today. Drink the living water and respond in holy worship. Now, for those of you that are not yet following Jesus, the truth of what Jesus says to this woman is also true for you. You will not be satisfied in this life apart from experiencing new life in and through Jesus. 
And you might even be a, a good person as far as culture is concerned, that you're pretty kind, you're pretty nice to people, you maybe even do good things. But if God isn't God to you, then it doesn't matter. Because you're effectively saying, I don't need you, God. I want to be the God of my own life. And that never ends well. See, this significant encounter for this woman can also be a significant encounter for you. I don't know the specific reasons that you decided to be here this morning. Maybe a friend invited you. Maybe you checking out who Jesus is. But God knows why you're here. He is sovereign over your life. He is providential to bring you here this morning. And so today is a gift of grace to you because today is the day of salvation. So turn away from empty pursuits of promised freedom that this world gives to you, throws to you, and turn today to the only one who can actually guarantee his promises to you and give you life from a well that never, ever runs dry. This interaction in John 4 that Jesus has with this woman at the well is possible because he took on humanity, because he needed a drink of water. Jesus enters into the mess of our lives to rescue and redeem us out of it and make something new. And what undeserved grace, what amazing grace that we have in Christ. He came to us to rescue us and bring us back to our relationship with God. May that compel us to continually to drink deeply from him and respond fully and continually as we encounter Christ, our Redeemer and our King. Every week we have an opportunity to respond in holy worship to the reality of the gospel by coming and taking communion with one another. It's a physical picture of an eternal and spiritual reality. We eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. We drink the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for us to be reminded of that grace and refreshed in the very real presence of Christ, our Savior, who laid down his life for us. So come forward this morning, brothers and sisters. Come forward to eat and drink and be satisfied, not in the bread, not in the cup, but who they point you to. And those of you that are not yet followers of Christ, we would just ask you to hang in your seat. Don't come forward and partake of these elements because we want you to take hold of Christ today. That you would take this moment and this time to repent and to place your faith in Jesus. And if you have questions about what it means to know him and follow him, what it looks like to begin that relationship with Christ, let somebody around you know. Come talk to me afterwards. We'd love to help you look, know what it looks like to actually have a real relationship with our living God. For those of you that will come forward, there are tables in the front and tables in the back. Come forward whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of bread. Take a cup to drink and hear what Christ your Redeemer has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we just pray, God, first that you would forgive us. Would you forgive us, God, for the broken cisterns that we have sought to find life in and satisfaction in? And God, I pray even right now, if we're still struggling to figure out what those broken cisterns might be for us, God, I pray that you'd reveal those to us. Point them out to us, highlight them for us, so that we might repent of them. God, forgive us of the broken cisterns we've pursued. Forgive us for the false worship that we've sought after. God, lead us back to you. Lead us back to you now in this moment. Lead us back to you tomorrow and every day thereafter. God, we pray that we would fix our eyes on Christ, the source of living water, that we might have life in him. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came and entered into the mess of our world so that we might experience new life in him. May we see him rightly and fully and be sustained by him and live lives of worship to the praise of your name. God, we rejoice in Christ our King this morning. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. 
If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace. Thank you.